you have a Bible, you can open to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we'll look at the very end of the chapter, Genesis 3, 20 through 24. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you. This is the last in our series on Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, next week, hopefully you'll join us again for um, a new series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So, But this is uh, the end of a several-month-long uh, look at um, the beginning of the story of humanity, the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of God's dealings with humanity uh, from creation through uh, his plans for salvation and what that uh, would come to look like eventually. And uh, so it's been a pretty full series. Um, Hopefully this sermon won't be too long as sort of a a capstone or, you know, a a final look at the the series. So um, let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we need your help. Uh, We always need your help, especially when it comes to considering your word, because there are so many things inside of us, in our minds, in our hearts, our our emotions, our affections that would resist uh, knowing what you want us to know about who you are and about uh, who we really are and um, your dealings in this world and in our lives. We pray that you would make us open to your word, make us open to your grace. Make us open to Jesus Christ by your Spirit. Make us open to your help and your love, the forgiveness that we find in Christ, and the transformation that we need to be able to dwell in your presence forever. We pray that you would make us open where we are closed, that you would um, open up our our ears and um, make us to see clearly things from your word that transform us more into the likeness of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, uh, I don't know how many of you know Stephen Fry, great kind of English comedic actor, a uh, bit of Fry and Laurie. Um, uh, he was in the, the Hobbit movies. Uh, Stephen Fry, great, great actor, great comedic actor. He says uh, something that uh, may shock you a bit. Let me read a little bit of an interview uh, where he was asked what he would say if um, at the end of his life his atheism turned out to be wrong and God turned out to be true and he met God in the afterlife. What would he say to God? Stephen Fry answered, I will basically say, bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, 
stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain. I wouldn't want to get into heaven on his terms. They're wrong. The God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac, an utter maniac, totally selfish. It is simply not acceptable. So atheism isn't just about not believing there is a God, but on the assumption that there is one, what kind of God is he? It's perfectly apparent that he's monstrous, utterly monstrous, and deserves no respect whatsoever. And the moment you banish him, your life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, more worth living. Pretty strong words, right? Um, People feel pretty strongly about this. I actually used to argue pretty much exactly the same thing when I was uh, not a Christian, I would argue this view of God, that, sure, if there is a God, look around you. This life is miserable, so what kind of God are we dealing with? Right? He's evil. He's selfish. He's monstrous. We look at the world around us, at the suffering that is so apparent everywhere, and we see tragedy. Right? We see tragedy. And when we can no longer bear the tragedy because it hurts so badly... Uh, we flip a switch in our minds and we look at the world around us and see nothing. We see meaninglessness. We see emptiness. Right? We blame God for the world around us or we just de- deny his existence. Maybe that's easier. Right? To blame him or de- deny his existence. Either way, we're refusing to consider the notion that the world around us is broken and full of suffering, real suffering, Uh, we refuse to consider the fact that that might be chalked up to us. Like uh, like Stephen Fry said, it's not our fault, right? We refuse to consider that it's because of our rebellion against God. It's because of our rebellion against his reality and even against our own nature as, as those who are made in his image. This is what the Bible makes clear right from the very beginning, right here in the first few chapters of Genesis, God made this world good and very good. And it is the way that it is now only because of our self-centeredness, our selfishness, our monstrosity, our sin. That's what the Bible says clearly right from the beginning. We're the maniacs. Stephen Fry wants to accuse God of being a maniac. We're the maniacs who made things the way that they are now, not God. God did not do this. And we don't banish him in order to make life better. God banished us. God banished us, and the hard thing to believe is that he did it actually to make our life better. That's the hard thing to believe when you come to this passage and you realize God banished us. He kicked us out of the Garden of Eden. It was actually for our good. It's very hard to believe that. This world, your life, for all of its sufferings, all of its real sufferings, it is not tragedy. It is not tragedy. Ultimately, it's comedy. And I don't mean that in the kind of the modern, flippant uh, way that we talk about comedy. When you look at sitcoms, right? Comedies, they're just meant to make you laugh. It's very flippant uh, humor, right? Um, but the original sense of the word, the original sense of the word, uh, I found this while on Wikipedia, uh, looking at Dante, Dante's comedy. Um, it says the word comedy, in a classical sense, refers to works, so works of art, plays, uh, writings, books, works which reflect belief in an ordered universe in which events tended toward not only a happy or amusing ending, 
but an ending influenced by a providential will that orders all things to an ultimate good. All right, so comedy is, uh, as opposed to tragedy, which just sees despair, meaninglessness, there's, there's the strength of humanity, and then maybe by chance it just withers up or just gets crushed, rolled over, right? Uh, comedy sees an ordered universe where things are on a path, on a trajectory toward uh, ending up well because of a providential will that's guiding all things to an ultimate good. And even here at the beginning of the scriptures, right in the middle of the bad news, this really is, chapter 3 is full of bad news about who we are, right, and our relationship with God. Um, Right in the middle of the news about the curse and the exile, we find the beginning of the comedic end. Uh, that God is working in the world. It's natural for us now to read a passage like this, to read Genesis chapter 3, the, the very end of it. It's natural for us now to read it and see God as hostile, right? To feel that he's our enemy, that he is against us, that he's kicking us out of the garden into the cold, dark, miserable world because he's a bad guy. It's easy for us to read that when we read this passage because it's an effect of having bought into the serpent's worldview, one of suspicion of God. Isn't he the bad guy? We're the good guys here. He's the bad guy. He's the one who's hostile against us. It's very hard for us to interpret this as anything but tragic because he's kicking us out into the cold, dark, miserable world. But look closely. Chapter 3, verse 20. The man... Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So finally, actually here right at the very end of the the three uh, introductory chapters of the Bible, finally Adam names his wife. We've been referring to her as Eve uh, throughout this series, but um, her name doesn't show up until here. Uh, And now, finally, Adam names her. And naming her Eve is like you named somebody life. Basically sounds the same as life. She's the mother of all living, right? Adam heard God's words, which we looked at the last few weeks, the curse, the curse against humanity for our rebellion and our sin. He heard those words not only as curse. He heard those words also as promise, which, again, we looked at the last few weeks. Uh, how uh, he's justified in doing so. Adam heard God's words as promise. There will be such things as childbearing and marriage and work and eating the fruit, right? God's not finished with humanity yet. Even in the curse, even what appears to us to be just bleak and tragic, Adam heard those words as promise, and he believed. And this is an overwhelming confession of hope to name his wife Eve, to, to name her life, that she's the mother of all living because she wasn't a mother yet. Looking back for us, maybe that's not instinctive to realize she's not a mother yet, but she would be, Adam believed that she would be. She would be the mother of all living. She had just participated in welcoming death into the world through sin. Nevertheless, Adam trusted that she would become the mother of all living. And as we've looked at this series of what living means, it doesn't just mean a meager existence. It doesn't just mean surviving. 
It means thriving in a relationship with God. She would be the mother of those who not, they wouldn't just exist and die in their sins, but they would truly live. She would be the mother of all those who would truly live in a right relationship with God again. God was not finished with humanity yet, and Adam believed that, and so he named his wife after that hope. And this becomes even clearer that God wasn't finished with humanity yet when God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So this is um, very basically uh, welfare, right? Um, Mercy ministry, compassion ministry. Derek Kidner says that social action, now delegated to human hands, could not have had an earlier or more exalted inauguration. Social action, covering the naked, clothing them. Very basically, this is is for their protection and for their warmth, right? To help them. And it's not merely a physical covering. It's not merely that because there is a moral aspect to our physicality and to our nakedness. There's a moral aspect, which again we looked at a few weeks ago, They felt their nakedness because they were ashamed of what they had done, and it exposed the kind of people that they really were now to be sinners, people who deserve rejection, right? And that's what their nakedness symbolized. And God doesn't just ignore it. He doesn't ignore their sin and their plight. He covers them, and he cares for them, right? He covers and cares for them. And um, I don't know how many of you watched Doctor Who Maybe this will be an entirely fruitless illustration, uh, but Doctor Who is a great show the BBC uh, has put on for a long, long time. And the Doctor is a time traveler, and he's got a, a, a time machine that looks like a police box. He steps in, he throws some levers and pushes a few buttons and holds on tight and shoots through space and time wherever he goes. He has a companion. He always has a companion. And his companion in the, the story that I'm thinking of, her name is Clara. Clara however you pronounce that in English, uh, British English. Uh, His companion, Clara, uh, she was in trouble. She wanted something desperately. She wanted the doctor's help. He was not willing to give it to her because of the the ramifications that it would have for the universe and for the time stream, right? All this fancy sci-fi stuff. And she violated her relationship with the doctor. She she held hostage um, what was most dear to the doctor, she threatened him, she manipulated him to try to get him to help her, right? Manipulated him into helping her to do what she desperately wanted. She betrayed him, she violated that relationship, and it was very significant, and you could feel the weight of it. And after the scene where she had betrayed him, uh, she's fully expecting him to reject her now, drop her off at the nearest planet or whatever. Um, And he says, okay, let's go. Let's go. And she says, you're going to help me? And he says, well, why wouldn't I help you? Because of what I just did? I just, the doctor says, you betrayed me. You betrayed our trust. You betrayed our friendship. You betrayed everything that I've ever stood for. You let me down. Then why are you helping me? Why do you think that I care for you so little that you betraying me would make a difference? 
Do you think that I care for you so little that your betraying me would make a difference? God said to Adam and Eve, just because you sinned against me and you threw away our relationship and this whole world is a mess because of you in your self-love, that doesn't mean that I stop loving you. God is the God who is love. And just because we betrayed him, uh, it wouldn't make a difference in his love. He is the kind of God who becomes a servant even to his enemies. He's a servant even to his enemies. That's mercy. People who don't deserve it. People who deserve quite the opposite, really, than his care. He cares for them and he serves them. Who do you, whom do you clothe? Dress. Who do you put clothes on? Somebody who can't do it for themselves? Somebody who's sick or injured, right? Somebody that you're caring for? Probably most of us thought, my, my children? I dress my children. And there's something very intimate about dressing another person, whoever it is that you're helping to put their clothes on, even if it's just tying their shoes for them. Right? There's something very intimate about it, and it's hard even to put into words what a parent feels when providing new clothes for their children and helping them try them on. Right? It's hard even to describe what that's like. There's real love there. There's real intimacy and love there. Henry Blochet says, How could he better demonstrate that he wishes to remain the God of sinners for their good and not for their ill? How could he say it better? How could he say it more clearly? He covers their nakedness. He covers their exposure which was most painful to them for the shame of their sin, for their treachery against God. They had violated their relationship with God. That's why their nakedness was a problem. And God, in love, moved out to fix that problem for them. There's real love there, not abandonment, right? Not shunning, which is so easy for us to read in this passage, and maybe even in the whole Bible, to think that God shuns us and abandons us. It's not what this passage is about. It's not what the Bible is about. And it continues on. It says that the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He puts him in his place as a creature. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So, um, David Lloyd-Jones says that uh, man wanted the knowledge of evil. That was something, that it was the tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that man was forbidden to take. He could not take both fruits, the tree of life and the tree from that, uh, the the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the serpent had convinced him, really, it was a good thing to pursue the knowledge of good and evil in disobedience to God. Right? And, and Lloyd-Jones says that man wanted the knowledge of evil. Well, this is it. Within us, there is a kind of inferno. We have an appalling knowledge of evil. Every one of us, it is inside us. Man, in seeking it, has found it 
but it is not what he had anticipated. It is not what he had expected. Man's knowledge of evil, then, is not like God's knowledge of evil. God knows it from a distance. God sees it and knows it very well, but not within himself. There's no inferno of evil inside of God. Man's knowledge of evil and man's knowledge of self are the same thing. Man's knowledge of evil and man's knowledge of self, they're the same thing. He wanted to be God and he failed. You do notice that we have failed to be like God. Henry Blochet says, Since mankind, in making himself like God, does not actually escape from the lordship of the only true God, he cannot both be autonomous and at the same time participating in life. The crazy little God with his absurd pretensions is not God and never shall be. All he can do is die. So believe it or not, in light of all of this, God's expulsion of Adam and Eve from the garden was a work of mercy. It was a work of pity. He could not bear the possibility of Adam and Eve eating from both trees, knowing evil in themselves, and living forever in that state. Knowing evil personally, the knowledge of evil and the knowledge of self being the same thing, and living like that forever. He could not bear it. Um, You do get the sense that he cuts himself off in the middle of that thought, lest they should reach out and also eat of the tree of life, and he cannot bear that thought. And so they were excommunicated. They were excommunicated, they were exiled, and it was for their own good. And when we see that in the scriptures, when you see excommunication, it's probably a scary word for people, um, uh, but you do see that it's for our own good. It's very difficult for us to have anything but a tragic view of excommunication, a harsh view a uh, view that excommunication is for punishment and isolation and alienation, right? It's, it's hard for us to have anything but a view like that, but the Bible assures us that it is actually meant for our good, right? I mean, the passage where you see this most clearly, this concept of excommunication uh, in the realm of the church, uh, church discipline, where we act on, um, in the best interests of one another, excommunication is actually a part of that program, Right? It says in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul writes to them, It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, even those outside the church. Don't do stuff like this, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Shouldn't you rather mourn? You're arrogant about this. Shouldn't you rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The ultimate reason for excommunication is salvation. It's for the sinner's good. They're not being cast out... um, with a view to their eternal punishment, but with a view ultimately to their salvation. This might lead to it. Your sense of being excluded, your being cut off, 
that might actually be the slap in the face or the cold water in your face that, that is needed for you to recognize the place that you've gotten yourself into and, and know your need for God's mercy and reconciliation to him. It might actually work. Excommunication is a form of love, and it's a hopeful form of love. In the church, it's not meant for punishment, ultimately for redemption, so the sinner might be saved and reconciled. That is the hope, right? And that's what's happening here. That's what's happening here in the garden. Peter Mead says that uh, God knew that to clothe an immoral soul in an immortal body would be cruel in the extreme. So he barred access to the tree of life. So he barred access to the tree of life. C.S. Lewis has a great picture of this in The, um, the Magician's Nephew. It's a part of the series, The Chronicles of Narnia. It's um, uh, the story of the beginning of Narnia when a few of the children from Earth uh, went into Narnia as it was being created by Aslan, but they kind of unwittingly brought with them evil. There was uh, evil incarnate almost in this uh, queen, this witch that um, tagged along with them, and they, they introduced evil into the, the world of Narnia at the very beginning, and um, uh, without explaining the whole thing, they needed to go to a, a garden, which is basically a picture of the Garden of Eden. They needed to go and retrieve the fruit, which is basically the fruit from uh, the tree of life. They needed to go re- retrieve this fruit in order to heal and restore uh, and save the land. And when they got there, these children discovered that the witch, the queen, had already taken and eaten of this fruit. Now, she was evil, and she ate of this fruit. And it says that she found her heart's desire and despair. She looked stronger and prouder than ever, even triumphant, but her face was deadly white, white as salt. It says now... The smell of that fruit to her is death and horror and despair. And Aslan, who, if you know the stories, he's like Jesus, right? He's God. Um, says, she has won her heart's desire. She has unwearying strength and endless days like a goddess. But length of days with an evil heart is length of misery. And already she begins to know it. All get what they want. They do not always like it. And um, so in order to prevent us from getting what we wanted, which would not have been good for us, uh, God barred the way to the tree of life for us. And he says, um, he says, now humanity has become like one of us. And that language should be reminiscent for us of the, the plural first-person language, uh, first-person plural language that we see earlier in Genesis 1. It's reminiscent of God's initial creation. It's it's a little hint that God is triune, that ultimately we discover he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God uh, in three persons, the God who is love, the God who's a community of persons uh, in joyful, delightful communion, and that God made us in his image in order to have relationships with him and with each other that would flourish and be beautiful and be characterized by love and peace, the original intention for humanity is, is referenced here, eternal life consisting of relationship with the one true God, right? And, um, and yet you get the idea that God is so moved that 
Adam and Eve have become like a, a distorted version of that. They've become like us in knowing good and evil, and he can't bear the thought they cannot live forever this way, not like this, not like this. So he sends them out. And Henry Blochet says that the, the very punishment conceals God's mercy. He does it for their good. He sends them out. In our self-centeredness, we see only his judgment, only condemnation, only exile. You look at this passage, and it's easy to see we're just cut off. That's it. End of story, right? We're kicked out. But it is both judgment and mercy. It's even, in a sense, mercy through judgment. Mercy through judgment. They're they're being spared a horrible, horrible fate, a a fate worse than death. They're being spared that by being excommunicated by being exiled from the garden. If God were only cruel or vengeful or even just merely just and righteous, if he were only that, then he would have cut down the tree of life and burned the garden to the ground. That's what he would have done. If he were only just, if this were only condemnation, only curse, he would have cut it down and burned it down. He would have removed any hope of returning, any hope of eating, any hope of living. And instead, he banished humanity from paradise. He barred them access with a future. And with a future, there's hope. And there remains the possibility of reunion someday. Because remember, what that tree really signifies is reunion, it's reconciliation with God himself. It's dwelling in the presence of the eternal God forever, right? Uh, The garden is a picture of the temple. It was meant to be that this garden temple would uh, cover the whole earth, that Adam and Eve would be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, bring it all into the presence of God like this garden was uh, uh, originally intended to be. That was the original intent for all the earth. And the, the point of a temple, all of this language in Genesis 1 through 3, it's a temple. It was meant to be a temple. Um... The point of a temple is that it's the place where people meet with God. It's the place where God's presence dwells. That's the most important feature of the garden and the most important feature of uh, whatever hope we have for the future, to be able to get back into God's presence and for that to be a good thing. Uh, They're actively prevented from returning. They're barred access by uh, God puts in place the cherubim, at the east entrance to the, the garden, the cherubim. Uh, Ezekiel calls these the living creatures. You see these also in Revelation. Uh, they're kind of mysterious. It's not said that they're angels. Not quite sure what else, what other kind of category of creatures they would be, but they're, they're living creatures. Their appearance is a bit confusing. It actually defies explanation. Ezekiel over and over again says, they have the likeness of like a human form, the likeness of faces in this was like the likeness of fire burning, and um, but they have maybe a human kind of a body with uh, four faces: human, lion, ox, and eagle faces. They they have an appearance like burning coals of fire. There's bright fire. There's spewing lightning. Right? These creatures are. Um, 
magnificent. Uh, they're mysterious. And it says in Ezekiel again that they move and they dart around like lightning. So they're terrifying, right? They're the kind of thing that when you see them, you pass out. That's common in the scriptures. They're terrifying. You're not going to try to push past them, you know, shoulder past them to get back into the garden. It will not be instinctive to do that. You probably couldn't gather your strength to do that. Um, And in Ezekiel's vision of the temple, in Ezekiel chapter 9, he says that the cherubim, they lifted up their wings and they mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. Sorry, I'm not going to explain all that because I don't really know what that's about, the wheels. Um, And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, the east gate of the temple. And the temple, again, in the garden, this is the same picture. They stood there and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. So the places where you see the cherubim throughout the scriptures are attending God in his temple, right? It says uh, that, that the forms of these cherubim are embroidered on a veil inside the temple that separates, that, that um, prevents anyone access to the Holy of Holies, the place where only the high priest can go once a year, great fear for his life, in order to uh, provide atonement for the sins of the people uh, by pouring the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat that covers the ark, the ark that represents God's presence with his people, his presence that we can't access, right? that we are barred from, the cherubim are on the veil to that room, right? and the cherubim are over the ark, guarding it. These terrifying creatures, that they bar the way to God's presence. The cherubim go wherever God goes. When that ark moved around, they were right there with him. Right? They go wherever he goes, they attend him, they bar the way to eternal life because they, they stand in between us and God. It would be a living hell for us to try to get past them to try to get back to the tree of life, to try to get back to the garden, to try to get back into God's presence, to eat that fruit and dwell in God's presence, it would be a living hell for people who are self-absorbed, self-centered sinners. It would be a nightmare reality for us to do that. In fact, that's actually one description that the Bible gives of hell. In Revelation 14, it's people who are in eternal, ceaseless torment in God's presence because sinners can't stand God's presence any more than God in his holiness can stand the presence of sinners if we're self-absorbed self-centered people we cannot stand God's presence we may not fully realize it there's a presence in the garden there's a presence in the temple there's a presence in heaven that we cannot bear it's a presence of holy love that self-lovers cannot bear, cannot stand. His ultimate reality, it stands over against our flimsy illusion. So which is worse then? To live in exile apart from the one who is life or to be utterly self-absorbed in the presence of the one who is love? Which one's worse? God thinks... 
is more hopeful. It's more hopeful for us to live in exile apart from him with the hope that maybe one day we could be reunited to him. So our race suffered estrangement. Our race suffered alienation from God. And if anyone was ever tempted to take a tragic view of life, it would be Adam and Eve right there on their way out of the garden. Anyone was ever tempted to be in such despair that it would bring them to the point of suicide. You can imagine it would be them. You can imagine it. They couldn't go home. They had tasted real beauty and real love, real life. They tasted it. And they couldn't go back. They couldn't fix things. They couldn't make it right. All they could do was lament their terrible choice. That whole fruit thing was pretty stupid. In aiming for autonomous control over their own lives, uh, it had only resulted in the total loss of control as it does for us all. We try to be like God. It doesn't work. We just end up miserable. Miserable and estranged from the one true God. So you can imagine the bitter remorse, the self-loathing, kicking themselves on their way out of the garden. But when they look back, they see the cherubim, the flaming sword. It's a picture of God's judgment. The flaming sword is a picture of God's wrath, God's anger, his righteous judgment that stands there against their sins. And if humanity was going to get back right with God, then we'd have to go through that first. We'd have to go somewhere that's unbearable to go, and we'd have to go through judgment. And you might think, along with uh, Stephen Fry, that you can find real peace. You can maybe find a simpler, cleaner, purer life, a life more worth, worth living just by banishing God from your reality from your life, from your thoughts. But the peace that you're looking for and the life that you're looking for, it only lies behind those garden walls, behind the temple walls, behind the barrier that separates us from God in heaven. It only lies beyond the gate, and the gate is guarded. You cannot find peace. You cannot find the real peace that you're looking for until you've passed the flaming sword, until you're prepared to live in God's presence, until you are made able to live in God's presence, in your humanity. And as long as you're blaming God for the mess of this world, you look around you, you blame him, you write him off because how miserable things are, as long as you're blaming him for the mess of your life that you've actually made, We've all brought this on ourselves. As long as you're doing that, you're not ready to meet him. You're not ready. It would be miserable for you to be in heaven where he is unless you become ready. You're still in denial that the sword of judgment stands between you. The sword of your judgment stands in between you and life. On your own, on your own, even if you are willing to admit your fault, right? Even if you are willing to admit your own rebellion against God, and that that's the reason why things are broken and why you've been cast out of the garden 
and why this world is a mess. Even if you're willing to admit that, you cannot get past that sword because that sword is ready to kill. That sword will kill you. The sword of God's judgment stands against you. Even if you're willing to confess, I deserve that, what does that get you? Death. It doesn't get you in. It doesn't get you through that. The tree of life is in there, but you can't get at it without dying first. This whole thing um, might just seem like a cruel taunt on God's part. There it is. There's that tree, there's that fruit that you need just out of reach. Never going to get it. But it's not that. It's not that. He has already provided the way through the gate. He's already provided it. Even though he didn't deserve it, the Son of God himself was sent out of paradise in order to extend paradise to the whole cosmos, to the whole creation. He came into the world and he has suffered as one of us. Whatever you think about God, like Stephen Fry, he's a maniac who created a world full of suffering, you cannot think that he has exempted himself from the suffering that exists in this world. He has fully entered and suffered along with us. He suffered humility and pain, real suffering that most of us will not even be able to comprehend He suffered even um, the rejection of God himself, even though he didn't deserve it. He never deserved it. God came into the world and he suffered. He's no cruel and detached God. That is not the kind of God that we acknowledge and worship. The Son of God was mocked and he was stripped and he was beaten so that you could be clothed and mended and healed. The Son of God was disowned at the cross. Remember, he calls out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a cry of desperation. He was disowned so that you could be adopted and welcomed by God as your Father. The flaming sword of judgment came down on him so that you could walk through into the garden into God's very presence. And again, Lloyd-Jones says that the Son of God advanced against the flaming sword as our representative and it smote him and it killed him. It broke his body and in breaking his body, it broke itself so that the flaming sword of God's judgment does not stand against sinners anymore who come to God through Jesus Christ. God's full judgment fell on him so that full mercy could be granted to people like us. And what happened at Jesus' death, the Gospels record, is that the veil inside the temple with the forms of the cherubim on it, that were guarding the way to the Holy of Holies, to God's very presence, that veil was torn in two from the top. Very thick, very tall veil, and God tore it in two. God is the one who has opened up access by his initiative, by his grace, through the sacrifice of his son, an access to which we've been barred until the way was provided, and it has been provided through Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, the garden, 
the temple, God's presence itself. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, not the way of death anymore, the living way that he has opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. If you want true joy, true peace, true rest, then you want life with God. That is what you want. And that is only available through Jesus Christ, through who he is and what he's done for you, his, his life, his death, his resurrection, his humanity, counting for you. Um, because of your spiritual union with him, as you put your faith in him, as you put your trust in him. And once you know God through him, once you've been uh, sprinkled clean of an evil conscience, your sins washed away, the forgiveness of sins that's uh, signified for us in baptism, uh, once you've been given a new heart, which is something you, you need to be able to live in God's presence forever, you need to become a new creation. And anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. Once you have that, then your suspicions about God, your tendency to look at passages like this and see God as only hostile, as only condemning, as only cursing you, your suspicions begin to turn into hopes. Hopes that he actually is good. Maybe he actually does love me. Maybe there actually is an eternal future that I can look forward to with joy, a happy ending to this whole thing. Your fears, as you get to know God, your fears give way to confidence in him. All this world, all this life, begins to appear that it's not just on a, a tragic trajectory, but one of comedy. There's new life. There's new life waiting at the end of all things. There's a new dawn. There's a new garden. There's a new temple. There's a whole new world and I will be made new and able to enjoy God's presence forever in it. Ezekiel 47, again, uh, this vision that, that he has of the temple, the temple faces east as the garden faced east, <clears throat> and there's water flowing east from the temple. It's the water of life, right? It's the river of life, and it starts as just a trickle that comes out of the temple, just a trickle, and as it goes further and further out, it becomes this raging torrent, this huge river. It's a miraculous river of life, right? It starts as just a trickle, not, not in some huge lake or something, <clears throat> but its source is God, and it's a river of life that goes out from Eden. It gets deeper and stronger as it flows, ca causing life to thrive wherever it goes, <clears throat> and Ezekiel says, on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, each one of the 12 months, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So healing will extend outward from this garden. Life goes out from the temple to the corners of the earth 
God himself is the source of this renewal. And we look forward to the day when truly his glory and his grace and his healing and his life covers the earth as the waters cover the seas. And we see that picture clearly in uh, uh, Revelation 21 and 22. Berta read some of this um, earlier this morning. It says uh, early in Revelation 21, John has the vision, just as Ezekiel did, of this new temple, this, this place where God's presence was with his people for life. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Psalm 46, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. It's that great dawn, that new dawn that we're looking forward to when Jesus Christ returns, the resurrection, the new heavens and the new earth inaugurated, that forever we'll, we'll live at peace with God in this new city, the city that uh, the picture that John gives is baffling. This city is huge, and it basically covers the whole earth because uh, the new heavens and the new earth and the, the new city of God's people, it's the same thing, right? The whole universe will be made new, and God will dwell with his people and wipe away every tear, and, um, and it will be joy forever, the beginning, the new beginning of a story that will never end. And so Peter Lightheart has a book called Deep Comedy where he talks about this and he says that the Christian Bible moves not from garden lost to garden restored, but from garden to garden city. God gives with interest. To say the same in other words, though the Bible gives full recognition to sin and to its effects on creation and humanity, the Christian account of history is ultimately comic. The happy ending is uncontaminated by any fear of future tragedy, and the characters do not simply end as well as they began, but progress beyond their beginning. It's the kind of vision that the scriptures give us of who God is and what his plans are for this world. The story of Job is a great example of this kind of deep comedy, this comedy that appears like tragedy. At first, Job suffered the loss of everything, absolutely everything. He suffered loss, and even though in his self-righteousness, in his desire to justify himself, he questioned God. Even though 
um, he questioned God's goodness and righteousness. In the end, God was gracious to him and didn't only restore what he had lost, but he multiplied it. He multiplied it. He gave him more than he had lost. We cannot grapple with the kind of God that turns tragedy into comedy like that. It's too much for us. Right? We cannot understand the kind of severe mercy that he has, which makes the end so much better than the beginning, even though the path is filled with thorns and thistles and pain, real pain, real suffering, that comes to a beautiful, blessed end that's better than the beginning. But that's the kind of God that he is. He is not hostile to you. He is loving. He is not cruel. He is gracious. He is not monstrous, not selfish. He's good beyond our categories, and he offers us hope beyond imagination. Um, This is deep comedy. Tears, real tears, that we have in this life are wiped away and replaced by laughter. Real mourning really turned into dancing. Garments of grief turned into the clothing of gladness. And the one who knows the beginning from the end has told us this. And he has pledged it to us at the cost of the life of his own son. So you can believe that. It's coming. One day, it's all coming. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, you are the one who knows the beginning from the end because you are the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. You're the one who testifies to these things, and you say, surely you are coming soon. And we say, amen, come Lord Jesus. And we pray that you would help us to get our hopes up about this world around us, about our lives, even in the face of real suffering, real tears, real pain of every variety. Would you help us to get our hopes up and teach us to trust in you because of who you are, because of what you say to us and promise us, and because of what you've done for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.